It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Roland Cliff to you, who's going to be the speaker at the 11th of our centenary lectures. He is a distinguished, I think I better read this out, distinguished <laughs> professor of environmental technology and founding director of the Centre of Environmental Strategy at the University of Surrey. And his research covers a great number of fields, and if I'm going to depart from the bit of paper and say something about his research. Many years ago, when I was a graduate student, um, I had a problem involving some kind of bubble, and I went and looked up a book which I found to be very readable. Amongst all the wretched books that I couldn't read anything about, there was one I could read. Sometime later, when I became a lecturer, I returned to that book, and I made some other useful notes from it. And I don't tend to do much research involving bubbles, um, but this particular book remained very much in my mind, and I did a double check that it really was the same author, <laughs> and indeed it is the same author. This is one area of his work where he wrote a book in the late 1970s called Bubbles, Drops and Particles, and I hope it's been a great success because it's an extremely good book, which I would recommend to anybody followed by, I think, a book on slurry transport, so indicating the strong chemical engineering and fundamental um, nature of Professor Cliff's research in those areas. Um, but he's also moved to the much broader topics of energy and sustainability, and has written papers on climate change and energy policies, as well as papers linked to sustainability. And that links in with the current, his current activities, and there are so many of them that I do recommend you look at the sheet, but I'll just pick out one or two. But he's president-elect of the International Society for Industrial Ecology. He's a visiting professor at Chalmers University in Sweden, which is one of the top universities in the world. He's a, unsurprisingly, he's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and of the Institution of Chemical Engineers, and Royal Society of Arts, and an honorary fellow of the Chartered Institute of Waste and Environmental Management. From that you get an idea of, you get a measure of the man, the scope of his work and his achievements. He has received a great number of prizes, and in 2006 was honoured in the New Year's Honours list. We are Earlier in our centenary, we were grateful to him for helping to host the debate on energy to our really undergraduates and visiting sixth formers, etc. He's going to talk to us about energy, or sorry, about engineering for sustainable development today. Before I release him to give the talk, um, I also want to say some thanks to Oxford Capital Partners who have sponsored the lecture and in particular to David Mott and Victor Christou, who are in the front row here. And just to note a couple of things, that their Oxford Capital Partners are one of the only venture capital firms to offer an internship program to undergraduate and doctoral students. And anyone present who's interested should make note of that, because it offers the opportunity to learn about investing in and growing technology, and that's something that is useful here to the academics too, who would hope that undergrads would go in, in get knowledge on how to invest and uh, improve technology, and then go back to the benefit of their supervisors and eventually the department. And the Oxford Capital Partners are involved in spin-off activities with the university. I'll stop here and hand over to Professor Cliff. Well, thank, thank you. you. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's always difficult to live up to an introduction like that, but I'll try. Um, it's a great privilege for me to be invited to give this lecture here, and thank you to the people who suggested my name, and my thanks also to Oxford Capital Partners for, for sponsoring it. Um, as you mentioned, I was here a few weeks ago in this very room, in fact, taking part in a debate on energy with um, 
Lord May or Bob, as those of us who know him call him. And I'm not going to do that again, OK? I'm going to talk about something different, so I'm not going to do energy policy and climate change in this talk, although it does actually fit very well into the structure that I'm going to try to develop here. If I look back at the brief I was given for this series of lectures, I was told that the whole theme was to discuss future engineering developments and how they might change our lives. So I could have talked about slurry transport or bubbles or fluidized beds or something, but I didn't. I thought I wouldn't. I'll talk about something else, um, and I'll reinterpret that remit to think about how future developments might change our lives as engineers. So I assume that most of the people in the room have got some association with the engineering profession. You're either getting towards the end of it, like me, or you're in the middle of it, like Richard Darton, our esteemed head of department, or you're associated with it, like my wife in the front row, daughter of an engineer and married to an engineer, or you're going to be going into the profession. Um, and I think I'm probably speaking mainly to that last group, the people who are going into the profession. Um, and I'm going to use the occasion to poke about in some of the dark corners where engineers sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, so Engineering for Sustainable Development is my title, and I'm partly inspired, I should also say, by a talk that Richard Darton gave a couple of weeks ago now on the occasion when he took over as president of the Institution of Chemical Engineers. So I'm going to warn you now, Richard, I'm going to pick up on your two E's, turn it into four E's, and then examine what it means for the future. Um, so let me start by a cartoon. I've got a few cartoons to illustrate the talk. And that's the only one that's funny, by the way. Um, I got this from a student magazine at the University of Melbourne when I was visiting a friend there a few years ago. Um, and, of course, it sums up an attitude towards engineers, which has been prevalent for quite a long time, and it's an attitude that I personally do not subscribe to. And one of my themes in this lecture is that engineers are not merely technicians. They shouldn't merely be technicians. They can't merely be te technicians. But if you recognise that, where does it take us as a profession? Well, the agenda which helps us through that has become known as sustainability or sustainable development. And the term is now so firmly embedded in, as the social scientists call it, the political discourse, that we can't ignore it. And um, it's unfortunate that the words sustainability and sustainable development have become rather debased by the way they're used, particularly by a lot of commercial companies. So I'm going to try and get behind that and... Um, what I'm actually going to do in this talk is skirt over a lot of things. Um, in fact, I run a one-week postgraduate module on sustainable development and what it means for engineering. And I'm not going to try and compress that into this one hour because I couldn't. But there is a lot more behind it. And I think the first serious use of the word comes from a report by, for the United Nations by, and it's known usually as the Brundtland Report. It was the World Commission on the Environment and Development. And it was... Um, a report for the United Nations, um, and it contains that statement, which is the one everybody knows. So, you know, if you're getting into sustainable development, that, of course, is the place you start. But if you look at it in context, there's the full paragraph. And what the full paragraph contains is the concept of limits. And at the sort of higher level, which is the, the approach which I'm going to be taking here, Sustainable development is about recognising that the planet is finite. We've got energy flux from the sun. We've got fossil energy in the form of things like oil, gas and coal. We've got finite quantity of material resources. And we've got to get on with it. And it still actually annoys me that you, if you pick up a classic uh, economics textbook for undergraduates... It will still talk about economic activity as being a function of things like capital, labour and land, but not constrained by resource availability. If there were no constraints, actually sustainability wouldn't be a problem because economic activity could continue to expand exponentially in the way some economists seem to think it could do. But we're living on a finite planet. 
and the Bruntner Report recognised that. There are limits imposed by the present state of technology and social organisation, great, on environmental resources and by the ability of the biosphere to absorb the effect of human activities, finite resources, finite capacity of the biosphere to cope with our emissions. And that means that we have got finite economic growth, um, finite consumption um, available to us on the planet. Those principles were embodied in the Rio Declaration, but I'll skirt over that and go to a rather later document um, attributed to the gentleman whom I'll share this podium with, um, Bob May. Um, and at the time, 1999, he was writing, with help from other engineers, David Fisk notably, um, the UK strategy on sustainable development, which the UK was required to do following the 1992 Rio conference. And it contains this statement. At its heart is the simple idea of ensuring a better quality of life for everyone, now and for generations to come. Now, I could take several days unpicking that statement, and I'm not going to, but I'll point out the difficult words. Quality of life, what do you mean by that? And it doesn't equate to material consumption. Empirically, it doesn't, and lots of other respects in which you simply cannot say quality of life equates to consumption. I won't have time to unpick that one, but I'll say a little bit about everyone now and for generations to come. The generations to come bit is what we got from Brundtland. Brundtland was talking about responsibility to future generations. But what um, the UK government statement, and this is still current by the way, says everyone now and for generations to come. That's the difficult bit, one of the difficult bits. It's called equity. Equality of opportunity, equality of life for all the inhabitants of the planet now and in the future. Well, we clearly aren't managing that for all the inhabitants of the planet now, so we've got to do something at least to reorganise the way in which we do things on the planet. And if we're thinking seriously about generations to come, well, people sometimes ask me how many generations, so off the top of my head I'll say ten. So if you go back ten generations, Cook was sailing around Australia. Okay? People were the same, society was totally different, Cook couldn't have foreseen us sitting here. Uh, what hasn't changed over time? Well, one of the things that hasn't changed over time are the laws of thermodynamics, actually. They are amongst the eternal fundamental truths, and who understands those? The engineers, actually. There you are, there's an introduction. I really think engineers have got a very important role to play in pursuing what we mean by sustainable development. And I wish more engineers, and I particularly hope the upcoming generation of engineers, will take that challenge seriously. Because if you leave it to politicians, social scientists, and, God forbid, economists, <laughs> we've had it. Right, so there, um, I'm a chemical engineer, as you heard. So I naturally think in terms of flows of materials and energy. And indeed, um, as far as I'm concerned, industrial ecology, which is the field I currently major in, is chemical engineering applied to the whole economy rather than to a process. Now, um, here we are, uh, living, breathing and excreting, the ease our emissions. Our society depends on food and other resources which we get from agriculture. We also depend on goods and services which we get in the main from industrial activities. Um, and these activities depend on non-renewable resources. And if you look at particular the energy part of that, we're still completely dependent on fossil carbon-based fuels. And when we use fossil carbon-based fuels, we turn the carbon into carbon dioxide and put it out into the atmosphere. So there's one of the emissions. So immediately, you can see two of the sorts of constraints which Brundtland recognised and which I want to emphasise. Um, we have finite availability of carbon-based fossil fuels, and there's a big debate going on at the moment about how far we are towards using up particularly hydrocarbons. We also have, um, to me, the obvious fact that our emissions of carbon dioxide are doing damaging things to the planet. And if you believe that, that, that global climate change is not happening, then I'll talk to you afterwards. Because honestly, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, 
the people who would like to think that it isn't happening or would like to think that it isn't caused by human activity have got their heads in the sand like the very worst of the mythical oys, of, um, ostriches. Okay? So climate change is happening. We've got to do something about it. We can have all the policies and social activities that we like, but at the end of the day, the engineers are going to, ones who are going to have to sort it out. So let's take that one seriously. Um, traditionally, ever since the Industrial Revolution, but not before, we've tended to use things on a once-through basis and then chuck them away and call them waste. Now, I've deliberately in this diagram drawn waste to be part of the economy because as long as you know where it is, you can go back and dig it up. And that is indeed happening in some parts of the world. In northeastern United States, old waste tips have been dug up because the metal content is more valuable than in virgin ores. And there are plans starting to come together to excavate old landfill sites in Europe for the resources. So waste remains part of the economy. And what we have to try to move towards is an economy in which we reuse materials many times. This is going beyond the idea of recovery and recycling towards designing products so that the materials in them can have multiple uses and that recovery and reprocessing can be energy efficient. And that's the field which is called industrial ecology. So what I'm summing up in this one diagram is an area where engineers in general, and I have to say chemical engineers in particular, are going to need to make some fairly significant improvements in future. But I'll come back to the constraints down here, and I identify just two of them. There are lots of others you can pick up if you think about this diagram in how it manifests itself in certain sectors. So I'll pick up on um, the ones down here particularly. And I try to represent the sets of constraints. And I think it's convenient to subdivide them into three sets. And the first one is what's sometimes called efficiency. And this is the conventional realm of the engineer. So in broad terms, what I'm trying to represent here is to say, here is a range of possible activities. It's a decision space, if you like. And it's constrained by our ingenuity it's constrained, of course, by scientific laws governing the use of energy and materials, um, and that includes thermodynamics. Um, and it also means that we've got to operate efficiently, and there's only one definition of efficiency, but it depends on the economic system in which you're operating. And at the moment, we are operating, obviously, in a globalised, essentially capitalist economy. And one of the long-term questions, and engineers have got to get into this debate, is whether that economic model is itself sustainable. That's going to get a bit beyond what I'm talking about here, but um, park it in the back of your mind somewhere. So there we have a set of activities which are possible, enabled by engineering activity, financial activities within the existing economic system. We've also got another set of constraints um, imposed by the limited capacity of the planet, limited resource availability, limited ability to cope with emissions. Um, and we'd better hope that the efficiency decision space and the environment long-term decision space overlap. So we've got to find our way into that overlap region. We're not there yet, that's obvious. Global climate change is part of the evidence for it. Um, I put this one in here because um, reading Karl Marx, as one does on, uh, on one's um, bedside table, um, Marx refers to, the, uh, to pollution as the excrescences of production. And I think we have to rethink that one because we're living in a much more developed industrial society and pollution, to me, represents the excrescences of consumption. And that shift of responsibility from the producer to the consumer is another very important part of rethinking the economic system. We're just starting to get on to that one. I'm starting to have conversations with people in DEFRA, for example, who are looking at the implications of working out resource consumption, carbon dioxide emissions, based on what we consume rather than what we make in the UK. And the answers are wildly different We'll come back to that one a bit later. And then the third set of constraints is the equity one, the 
uh, better quality of life for everybody now and generations to come. Okay? Um, so the equity lobe represents the moral constraint, if you like, that we ought to be providing a decent quality of life for everybody on the planet now and in the future. So if you put those three lobes together, you get a Venn diagram. Um, and as I point out to my students, if you can come up with a three-lobe Venn diagram, you pass for an intellectual in any company. <laughs> Great thing to do. Um, so what's sustainability? Well, sustainability is the bit at the middle of the diagram where we're compliant with all three sets of constraints. We're doing things which are viable and efficient. We're doing them in ways which are compatible with the capacity, with the capacity of the planet in the long term. And we're providing a decent quality of life for everybody now and into the future. And clearly what we're doing at the moment is out here. It may be efficient, and it may be economically profitable, but it certainly isn't compatible with the long-term environmental constraints, and clearly it isn't providing a decent quality of life for everybody, or we wouldn't have famines. So sustainable development is finding a trajectory like that, trying to find our way into the middle of the diagram. And I think that's about as far as I'm going to go this evening in trying to define sustainable development. We're now going to look at some examples of it. Um, the point I want to make to sum up right here comes from a friend of mine whom, with whom I worked on the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution for some years, who's actually a, a reverend professor and um, professor of theology and ethics. I really thought we wouldn't get on, but then we found out, I think to his surprise as much as mine, that we agreed on just about everything except the existence of God. <laughs> Which is quite significant. Think about it, and we'll come back to it. And Michael Banner, his name, pointed out to me that sustainability and sustainable development are actually ethical concepts. They're like justice. We've known since at least the Athenian Republic that justice is an important principle. But we've never been able to nail it down in one sentence. And we can't. And if you look at, for example, the most recent philosopher who's tackled the subject of justice seriously, Rawls, died a couple of years ago, a great philosopher. Rawls's writings on justice are probably about that thick. Okay? Why do we have case law? Because justice is a difficult ethical principle which has to be approached by developing case law. And that, I think, is the way we need to approach it when we're trying to define sustainability and sustainable development. Now, that's okay, because in my experience, and probably yours, um, people of the sort of turn of mind that draws them into engineering like to proceed by specific example. And I think proceeding by specific example is, is in fact, the best way to explore what you mean by sustainability and sustainable development and to explore why they are important for engineers and why, going back to my starting point, um, they actually change what it means to be an engineer. Um, right. Okay. Sustainable development is an ethical concept like justice. So here, Richard, are the four E's. Okay. Environment, efficiency, equity, and ethics as your guide through the maze of trade-offs, contradictions, tensions um, that are necessary to face to get from here to here on the diagram. I'm not a great favour of the uh, fan of the moral maze, by the way, on radio. I think it's trivial, intellectually. Um, so I'm not going to go there. However, let's explore what ethics means for engineering. Uh, and this is put in a bit, I suppose, because I still occasionally meet people who try to uh, pretend that engineering is an ethics-free zone. Well, of course it isn't. Um, I meet even more economists who try to pretend that economics is an ethics-free zone. Um, and if you meet one of those, just say, Calor Hicks compensation test. It's like going back to a vampire. Um, <laughs> I won't go into it, but it's, it's, it's one of the real Achilles heels in economics. Um, so, I put this in, probably not necessarily for this audience, but for some audiences, I have to point this out. There are quite a lot of books written, mainly in the, some very good books actually in the late 60s, early 70s, on the social problems associated with science. There's relatively little written for, about engineering, and I think that's a pity. There are a few books on the social problems of engineering, and quite a lot of them, frankly, are not very good. 
Um, so guess what I'm going to be spending my retirement doing? You can see that. Um, but let's be clear on what the distinction is. Scientists, uh, and it's a distinction which it, it annoys me that this is not understood in the press. And in particular, I meet a lot of social scientists, actually, who I think, otherwise intelligent people I respect intellectually, who can't grasp the difference. Science is about studying things and explaining things, and engineering is about doing things. Okay? Our natural role is to try to change things, and one would hope make them better. Okay? Well, there's an ethical principle already. What do you mean by better? Um, so, I'm into ethics. Um, ethics refers to general beliefs, attitudes, or standards that guide customary behaviour. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, and this is a point I very often have to make when I'm in discussion with American academics, ethics is a branch of philosophy, not a branch of religious studies. Okay? And there it is in words associated with the luminary who said it. <laughs> um, but there's more behind it. And if, if you go to, a, I don't know if you know the um, beginner's books, the sort of cartoon books, they're actually quite good. The best ones are rather informative. Um, philosophy of Beginners contains this I think, quite insightful statement. This obligation to provide some kind of explanation, proof or evidence to the ideas is the obvious difference between philosophy and religion. Um, the fallacy that ethics has to do with religion was perpetrated a couple of years ago. A document came out from DEFRA on how to teach sustainable development. And it's uh, linked it to religious studies. Well, now, you know, just on a pragmatic level, think about it. When I'm teaching sustainable development at the University of Surrey, I have in front of me a class which contains eight religions, plus agnostics and atheists, and they're agnostics and atheists of different religions, if you see what I mean. Um, so if I'm going to start from religious studies, we're going to get nowhere. So the, the approach of trying to develop an ethical code, which is based on philosophy, logic, and argument, not on received wisdom or belief, is actually very important... And I think it's an important one for, for engineers to engage in. Um, Desjardins, again, wrote an excellent book on environmental ethics. Um, ethics has a branch of philosophy. Well, there you can read that bit. Um, here's the key bit. The difference between ordinary experience and the first level of philosophical abstraction is the difference between what is done and what ought to be done. That's my theme for the next 20 minutes or so. The difference between what is done of what ought to be done. And by the way, I'm not going to go beyond the first level of abstraction. If I did, well, I've got another lecture, if you ever want to invite me back, which is about Heidegger's philosophy and its implications for engineering. But I'm sure you don't want that this evening. Now, if you want to illustrate the difference between what is done and what ought to be done, here's a good start. I'm going to let you just leave you to think of that, about that. It's a cartoon by Steve Bell, who I think is brilliant. He's the cartoonist in The Guardian. And this appeared in The Guardian on the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And if you see the figure, it's drawn from a da Vinci drawing called Vitruvian Man. And the idea behind the da Vinci figure is that the proportions of the human body can square the circle. The idea that da Vinci was trying to express is man is the measure of all things early days of the humanist movement during the Renaissance. And what Steve Bell's done is take the da Vinci image and superimpose it on the gate of Auschwitz. And I think that's terrifying. What he's saying in a cartoon, metaphorical way is Auschwitz is in some respects an outcome of that big change in social and intellectual patterns that started with the Renaissance. It's a perversion of human abilities. Now, okay, now stand back, be engineers, and try and pretend that we've got no ethical sense. Auschwitz was a brilliant engineering achievement. The logistics worked brilliantly. The processing worked to design. If you just look at that as an engineering achievement, it was ace. Chemicals were right. The transport was right. The waste disposal was good. But I'd hope quite sure there's nobody in this room who would say that it would have been right as an engineer to work on Auschwitz. And if you think what happened at the end of the last world war, 
the Nuremberg Tribunal. Nuremberg Tribunal, the, the um, cases held at Nuremberg, rammed home that principle. Saying, I was only obeying orders, isn't enough. Okay, now at Auschwitz it may have been obvious that the uh, result of that engineering activity was right in front of your eyes. What I'm now going to get onto is to point out that there are a lot of places where we're doing that, but it's not in front of our eyes. That's why, come back to that one, bear it in mind, as I say, I think it's a horrific image, terrifying, but has a lot to tell us. Um, okay, so I am only obeying orders was not an excuse. If you were an engineer who designed, for example, the logistics system there, turning up at Nuremberg and saying, well, I was only doing what they told me to, Gov, wouldn't have been enough, and shouldn't have been enough, okay? Right. Now, so what I'm now going to do is go through a few case studies. Some of them fairly simple, then a rather more complicated one towards the end. I have on occasions taught ethics to engineering students, um, one of the things I do at Chalmers, by the way. Um, so, of course, engineers being engineers, I try and do it by case studies. And um, if you're interested, the approach I use is, is based on Zen teaching because I try to introduce these things as what a Zen student will recognise as a koan. Right, so the first one is actually quite easy. It's acid rain. Now think about the history of acid rain. Um, and I'll look at it in terms of the relationship between UK and the Scandinavian countries. If you go back to the 1970s into the 1980s, um, environmental policy in the UK was set in terms of maximum permissible ground-level concentration of a pollutant measured within the UK. And historically, there were very good reasons for that. Go back to the Alkali Act in the mid-19th century. Um, companies were regulated on the basis of what you could actually measure. So you could measure, for example, the concentration of acid emission at the point where the plume from the chimney came to ground. And so the uh, pollution industries were set in terms of that maximum measurable ground-level concentration. Well, if you come at this naively, what are you going to do? Well, the cheapest way to meet those regulations is to make the chimney taller. Okay? So that the plume gets more dispersed before it's come to ground. And when you make the chimney taller and taller and taller, the plume goes so far that it goes a long way. I can remember a clear day in the late 1970s when I was flying back from North America, very clear. Um, we flew over a cement plant in the west of Ireland and I could trace the plume right the way over England and onto the continent and I couldn't see where it was going because the plane landed first. So if you get your chimney right, the plume goes a really long way. Now, what actually happened? Well, the Scandinavians decided that there was measurable acidification of the lakes in Scandinavia and there was quite a lot of very good forensic work done which linked the acidification of the Scandinavian lakes to the emissions from chimneys in the UK. I won't go into the background of this. There's a lot of foot shuffling and uh, UK government tried to pretend it wasn't us. And then finally we got round to, okay, right, we better reduce emissions of acid gases then. Okay? So that was the sort of public face and the bit of engineering that was involved, flue gas desulfurization, got it, worth, got it wrong at Drax the first time, but then finally we fixed it up. There's something more subtle behind that, because what this was actually saying was, yes, okay, there is actually an ethical principle here. We've got a moral community, and it isn't just the inhabitants of the UK, it includes the people who are subject to the negative consequences of our emissions. Now, that was actually a new statement, new ethical statement. Um, you can follow that one through. Um, I'm not going to go into global climate change, of course, but this is also recognition of moral obligations towards people we can't see. In this case, the reason we can't see them is we haven't been born yet. Okay. Now, why am I so bothered about this? Well, I've got a grandson, and I quite like him to have a decent world to live in. Um, but I don't need to personalise it that way. We have responsibilities to people we can't see. Okay? So you see where I'm going. Auschwitz was obviously absolutely wrong because you could see it. 
Now, if you're doing something and you know it's happening, even though you can't see it in front of your eyes, how is that different from working on the transport system or the processing system at Auschwitz? Okay? Um, next one. Let's look at supply chains. Um, I've spent quite a lot of my time in the last 15, 20 years working on an approach which is called life cycle assessment, which is how you work out the environmental implications of providing a product. And basically, uh, if you're making anything, and uh, I'm going to use the mobile phone as an example, actually. It's not switched on, it's all right. Um, if you look at where a mobile phone comes from, well, very roughly, you can break the supply chain down into these steps. Okay, you've got to extract the stuff, you've got to make it, distribute it, then you use it, and then it becomes waste. Unless you're an industrial ecologist, in which case you ask what could happen to it there. At each step in that supply chain, you take resources from the earth and you cause emissions. And I was doing some work at the time with Nokia, which is the reason why mobile phones are a good example. And um, one of the questions we tried to address for and with Nokia was, why is it that recycling a mobile phone appears to be uneconomic? Why is it that the metals, in particular, in that phone are worth less than metals now in the ground. And what we came up with was the idea of the sustainability of a supply chain. So on this axis, you've got the added value. There's a standard economic definition for that, which I won't go into. But it's the uh, economic benefit which uh, goes to each of the players along the supply chain. And I've broken it up into those steps of resource extraction... Number two, processing and refining, getting the metals out. Number three, manufacturing. And number four, retail and distribution. So if you, if you analyse the supply chain, Nokia were very uncomfortable for me to put numbers on the diagram, but it is drawn to scale. Okay? Um, what you see is that you get a huge environmental impact in the early stages of the supply chain, um, decreasing as you go along the supply chain. <coughs> now, if you think about that, number one, it's probably obvious. It explains why companies like to get along to the right-hand side of that supply chain. That's where the profit lies, and where you can pretend that you're doing good environmental business. Um, but in fact, you're not if you are relying on cheap raw materials which are hacked out of the earth uh, and which provide the producer country with a small economic benefit compared to the environmental damage. So, for example, if you're trying to measure the UK's carbon footprint, you do it on a production basis, you get quite a little number. But if you do it on a consumption basis and look at all the stuff which is extracted elsewhere and imported, you get a number which is of the order of somewhere between 10 and 50 times as large. <coughs> right, this also shows you that if you're a developing country and you're trying to pull yourself out of the mire by primary extractive industries, you haven't got a hope. And um, it also explains why it is that recycling mobile phones appears to be uneconomic, because we're not paying enough for the primary resources. So there in one, that diagram explained rather a lot to me, and it told me that if I want to have a sustainable supply chain which is one which meets those constraints, viable, compatible with the environment, and equitable, then I ought to be looking for a supply chain which is straight. That gross complexity is one of the reasons why the way we're doing things is so unsustainable. Now, at the time we published this eight years ago, I thought this was a pretty serious paper. I mean, it was brought out to me a number of things I've been worried about, and it got... Then it got ignored in the literature and the way things do. Um, but then I was delighted to find a few months ago that MIT has set up a whole research program based on the idea of convex supply chains. So it is, has actually gone somewhere. Um, so, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that for mobile phones, well, they are. Uh, it's the cheapness of the primary resources that is the barrier to recovery and recycling. Um, and, uh, oh, yes, and by the way, the primary resources, the mining of the precious metals in particular, can finance major conflicts. What pays for the civil war in Congo? Your mobile phones, folks. Uncomfortable. 
should be as uncomfortable as thinking what might have happened if you'd been working on Auschwitz. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, there's another real case. Um, following on that, I worked with a major retailer. Um, and the M&S, I will name them, actually. Uh, and I think M&S are serious. Very impressed by the people I work with in Marks and Spencer. Um, and we looked at the sustainability of their supply chains, particularly of food. And we looked at um, particularly fruit and vegetables, which are sold in the UK, which should be seasonal produce, but which are actually sold year-round. And a particular case we took was green beans imported from East Africa, for example. Now, if you look at the supply chain, um, it's slightly more complicated. It's got a great big kink in the middle. And the reason it's got a great big kink in the middle is air freight. Air freight is the fastest-growing contribution to global climate change. Um, and if you do your carbon calculations on the basis of what you consume rather than what you make, it turns out that things imported by air freight have a disproportionately large contribution to it. So M&S said, oh hell, what are we going to do about it? And fair dues, they didn't deny it. Uh, when we first came up with the results, they said, well, can you not publish them yet? So we said, look, you're not going to suppress it. No, they said, no, we want to think about it. And they had the... Um, Honesty to develop this, and what we happened with them was that we, we worked through with Marks and Spencer and produced a guide for their buyers to help them address the question, when would it be permissible to import fruit and vegetable by air? And the answer, after several workshops with their buyers, was if it provides a benefit to the producer. Okay, well, that, I thought, was really quite helpful. Um, it's starting to see the supply chain not simply as something which provides you with beans or chocolate or whatever, but actually provides economic benefit to the producer. Now, that's not a new story. Uh, it's the idea behind the fair trade movement. And if you want a comfortable message to take away, um, fair trade chocolate is a really great way of spending your money, especially if it's very high quality and very expensive. One of the other corollaries from this, which I won't have time to go into tonight, is luxury goods are actually a very good way to spend your money. Right, now here's another one. Rather topical. Uh, another one I've been involved with a lot lately. Biofuels. There's been a lot of debate about biodiesel and bioethanol as transport fuels. Um, and as so I've had to point out to one or two of people around the patch. I've been saying for 15 years now that this is a stupid thing to do. In the last few months, I'm not going to claim the credit for this, of course, but in the last few months, the tide of the debate has swung round. So that people are now seriously questioning whether things like biodiesel and bioethanol do actually represent more sustainable fuels. And there are two problems. One is Given that these are grown from crops and therefore the carbon ought to be renewed or replaced, uh, are the carbon savings actually real? Now, you can work that one out by life cycle assessment. There's a lot of work done on it and I won't go into that one. Um, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. There are even quite a few well-documented cases where the carbon balances for bioethanol in particular are worse than just digging the oil up and refining it. But then the other one is... Okay, what effect does the demand for biofuels have elsewhere in the world? And this one, of course, has come onto the radar a lot. If you're growing rapeseed to produce biodiesel, then you're not growing food. And if you look at calculations done by friends of mine at the Technical University of Denmark, if we, the European Union were to go ahead with its target of a proportion of transport fuels from biological sources, that would take up, if they were produced in Europe, about two-thirds of the agricultural land in Europe. And I know for a fact that when the renewable transport fuels obligation was brought in in this country, nobody at DEFRA even thought to ask, what does this mean for, for land use? Well, of course, you're not going to use two-thirds of the land in Europe for growing biofuels because they're going to go on buying, growing food. Hence, this one. Cartoon put out in an advertising campaign last year by... 
group of NGOs, including Greenpeace. <coughs> Why? Well, because if you increase the demand for biodiesel, which comes from oil crops, the biggest source of oil crops is palm oil, and palm oil plantations are being developed in particularly Malaysia and Indonesia and elsewhere um, on the expectation that the market for biodiesel is going to make them a lot of money. And this one I'm going to mention Richard Darton again. Richard told me about a year ago, I think, when he'd been on a visit to Malaysia and there's a new airport at Kuala Lumpur. And if I remember the story right, Richard, you asked them what was here before the airport was built and they said palm oil plantations. And then you asked them what was here before the palm oil plantations and they said nothing. And nothing was rainforest with orangutans. Okay, right, ethical problem. Here we are saying orangutans are great. I had a marvellous argument with Michael Banner, the philosopher I mentioned earlier on, uh, over whether orangutans had souls. It was a lighter moment in one of the Royal Commission meetings. So we stand here and we see these lovely, furry, human-like animals. What right do we have to impose our ethical principles on the people in Malaysia and Indonesia who want to develop their economy by clearing the rainforest, removing the habitat for the orangutans, and instead growing palm oil? Now, I know where I stand on that because I've worked out what my own ethical stand on it is. But I don't think you can come to that one without actually addressing it on an ethical basis. And I think as an engineer, you've got to. The chemical engineering community in particular has got particularly fired up about the marvellous technological challenges of turning biological material into transport fuels. Sure, they are technological challenges. But my question is, should you be doing it anyway? Okay? Um, otherwise, are you not risking putting yourself in the position of the man who designed the logistics at Auschwitz? Okay, you've always got to ask. Okay, um, and I, now my last koan is possibly the most complicated, um, but I'll give you a reference where you can read more about it. Okay, a book which I strongly recommend. I have all the forms, by the way, if anyone wants to. Have them in my briefcase. Um, and the final koan, which is also intractable, you've got to, there is no answer, you've got to come at it by looking carefully at what your ethical ground is. And let me say right from the start, if you're interested in teaching ethics, this is a particularly good one because you reach completely different conclusions if you come at it from a teleological or a deontological viewpoint. And if you don't know what those words mean, it doesn't matter. Um, so this has to do with a uranium deposit in northern Australia. The previous examples I've given you, I've had some personal involvement. I had a bit of involvement here because one of my PhD students did a life cycle assessment of different nuclear fuel routes uh, and started with primary data from northern Australia. There are deposits of um, relatively concentrated uranium ore in northern Australia and some of them are in an area called Kakadu, I've never been there, but friends who have say it is indeed marvellous. I'll show you some pictures of it in a minute. Uh, it's Crocodile Dundee country, really. And some of the particularly rich deposits are in, at a place called Jabiluka, which is close to an area of the Kakadu, which is actually not just a national park, but a UN World Heritage Site. Not just for its ecological value, but because it's sacred to the Aboriginals. Okay, so here's a picture, a few pictures. Uh, a crocodile, it's that sort of country. Um, scenes from the uh, Kakadu National Park. A tailings pond. If you've been involved in the mining's, mining industry at all, you'll know what that is. A protester. She was actually the leader of the protest movement against the development of this particular ore body. In the middle there, you've got the Ranger Mine. That's an existing uranium mine. It's the one my doctoral student worked at, briefly. Um, and here you have a protester, could be my son-in-law almost, but he isn't, um, being led away by the, one of the Australian Rangers, trying to stop the development of the Javiluka mine site. Now, let's unpick a bit what's behind that. 
you've got a relatively rich deposit of uranium ore. The proponents say um, that this is consistent with sustainable development. They're using good words. Um, the ore is needed for civil nuclear power, low carbon, you've got the good words, and they promise to make sure it doesn't get into military use. Um, the particular ore lease that they were looking at is actually outside the World Heritage Site, and they're going to design it for minimum impact. I have to say, at that point, I start not believing, because if that's a minimum impact <laughs> mine... Uh, now, I could come at that as an engineer and say, that's stupid. No, why are you doing what dry handling? Obviously, you should be doing hydraulic handling. And as you know, I've worked a bit on hydraulic transport. So my gut, purely engineering reaction there will be to say, well, change over from dry processing and do wet. It be much lower, much less of an eyesore, but it will still be there. Um, and it will provide local economic development. In other words, it will provide economic development for her and her family. But she didn't want it. Why? Well, there's the position set out by the opponents. Um, and I guess the most important one there is... Um, what have we got? Well, it's a threat to their natural and cultural values. Um, it will disturb some of the sacred sites. The process by which the mining lease was agreed, they maintained, was unfair. You might believe that. I don't know if there's anyone here from New Zealand, but I only discovered recently on reading the Penguin History of New Zealand that the Treaty of Waitangi, which was the treaty between the Pakeha and the Maori, was such a screw-up because the versions that were signed by the two parties differed. <laughs> so I can believe that um, there were procedural irregularities. They've already experienced adverse environmental and social impacts, not least drunkenness and drug addiction amongst the original population. And um, the past experience, particularly with the Ranger Mine, tells them that the experience, uh, that experience tells them that the promises to limit the environmental damage aren't that real. Uh, and here's a, t a, um, a quotation from the particular statement that was put out by the um, clan leaders. And read just those lines, I think. The Mirar are the Aboriginal clan who live in this area. Okay, so here you've got a direct ethical conflict. On the one hand, you've got a company, um, and I'm actually prepared to believe that they were going to try, at least, to make this, um, the impact of this development as small as they possibly could, but past experience doesn't fill you with great glee. Um, opposed by the local people, who are amongst the groups they say are going to benefit from it, who actually don't want it to happen. Well, immediately, no right answer. So how are you going to come at that? Well, I'll leave it with you as a Zen koan. Because if you come at that from a teleological or deontological stance, as I said, I think you end up with quite different answers, and that's quite helpful. So what actually happened? Well, the mine was started, you saw the tailings pond, but then further development was stopped. And it was stopped, actually, when the company was taken over by Rio Tinto. It was a different mining company that had it previously. Rio Tinto took them over, and only after they'd taken them over did they really realise that they'd taken over Javiluka. One of my former students was working for the company at the time, and the words which went round the office when they heard that they'd taken ownership of the Javiluka site was, oh, shit. <laughs> so they stopped further development. But it's under long-term care and maintenance. The story has not ended... If you go back to what I've heard uh, anecdotally from people who were involved in the last round of negotiation at Jabiluka, the mining company and the Aboriginal clan leaders had reached an agreement that the site should be developed in certain ways. And following the best Babylonian principles, they came together the following morning to sign the agreement. And one of the Aboriginals said, no, it's off. And the reason is that the land came to me in a dream and told me that this should not go ahead. Now, all credit to Rio Tinto, they backed off. However, they backed off on condition that the thing will be revisited in five years' time. And you've only got to say yes once. 
Okay, so the Jabiluka story is not over. Let me bring you back to the point then. Um, I think that engineers who imagine that engineering is an ethics-free zone need to be reminded of ways in which engineers have deployed their skills in the past. And the mere fact that you can't see it in front of your very eyes uh, doesn't prevent it from being wrong. And in a globalised economy, as I've tried to point out, you are affecting people even though you can't see them. So I think we have a responsibility to think that through. And that kind of thinking led me to... This was a talk I gave a few years ago now. Gosh, it more than ten. I've forgotten that. Um, I think you can identify three generations of engineers. You go back to the 19th century, Brunel would be um, an example. Heroic materialist, entirely right for his time. Great engineer, great man. No question about it. You come forward to uh, the Mark II engineer, the response of the engineer to supply human needs. Um, and I guess I would date that about somewhere around the middle years, early to middle years of the 20th century. And I've got a model there. His name is Dermot Manning. Uh, he's actually my wife's father, as it turns out. And he discovered polyethylene and built the first high-pressure polythene reactors, one of them's in the Science Museum. And Dermot was quite clear that he was doing this. It was interesting to talk to him about why he thought polyethylene was a good development. He didn't have in mind shopping bags. He had in mind polytunnels and growing crops in inhospitable parts of the world. But of course, globalisation of the supply chain, increasing awareness, means that we have to move on. So I think what we now ought to be looking at are Mark III engineers. And here's the crunch bit, which is difficult. I said I was going to poke in some of those places that engineers find uncomfortable. And I also said at the beginning, it's not enough just to be a technician. I think the role of the engineer is to engage in public debate really join in, and you've got to join in as an impartial expert. If you join in as someone who is advocating a particular technological approach, you've lost it. People won't trust you, and they're right. And if you think that analysis is wrong, look at what happened to the nuclear industry, to the GM industry, how many do you want? You've actually got to go into the public debate as what I've called in some of the other stuff I've written, an honest broker. And the role of the honest broker, well... Perhaps it's uncomfortable because the people who in the past have gone into engineering maybe didn't like engaging with public meetings. But maybe if we embrace that one, we'll start to attract into engineering uh, people who might otherwise go off and read media studies. <laughs> yeah, we'd all be the better for that. Um, so, uh, there's a quotation from a book, another chapter in the book, which I strongly recommend, all of you all the forms available from the speaker. Um, engineers have got things to bring to this. We can take a systems perspective. I think that's probably, some, trying to sum up in one phrase, the most important thing. We can look at all the bits of it. And there are systematic ways of doing that, um, which I've been working on at the moment, working with a bunch of social scientists. I know this is uncommon, but actually I like working with social scientists because they think differently. Uh, once you've got the hang of each other, it can be very perceptive. Um, so there I'm going to sum up my message. The sustainability agenda doesn't change the tools of the engineer, but it does change what it means to be authentic as an engineer, to really embrace your job. And there's the punchline. In some applications, I think engineering needs to be a normative discipline, and that's something it's never actually achieved so far. Thank you.
subtitle really, being a technician is not enough. And I, I think all of us will take away at least one image from, uh, from this talk. A very, uh, very gripping image, just to remind us of what we're about. Um, I've known Roland actually for quite a long time, since the days when he was a real chemical engineer doing uh, technician-y things. And I think, and indeed, Al already mentioned his superb book, Bubbles, Drops and Particles, about which the joke goes that it actually only deals with the bubble, the drop, and the particle. Um, and, <laughs> and he dealt with the whole ensemble, then that would have been the whole of engineering. Um, but he grasped, I think, very much sooner than most of us, the importance of the sustainability agenda. And in fact, he started this Centre for Environmental Strategy in the early 90s down at Surrey, when many of us thought, goodness me, what is that exactly? Uh, the days before we realised that environmental strategy was a subject that anybody would devote time to. And my goodness, how, uh, how prescient he was in starting that, and how influential he's been in, in changing people's perceptions in the engineering world and through his work on the Royal Commission, um, a much larger body of, uh, of opinion and indeed policy. So, Roland, thank you very much indeed for a smashing talk. I won't go on. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are just itching to get at you and, uh, and dispute some of the things you've told us. So, on, on everybody's behalf, thank you very much.